All right. Welcome to Unapologetically Male, where we talk about surviving society stigma standards and systems. Um, we want to take the time to, you know, highlight some of a few things. Want to shout out my co-host, Brother EJ Stewart. Um, shout out Boss Lady Jennifer Pope from J Pope and Associates. Um, and what this uh, podcast interview series is done is being done to highlight African American story, African American male stories, and how they achieve to where they are surviving you know the stigma standards and the systems that they had to uh go through to get to their position uh our guest today is brother randy green and i'm going to give him a few minutes to talk about a little bit about himself where he's from where what college he attended you know any you know any fun facts that we we need to know about brother randy green peace good evening gentlemen first i want to say thanks for having me um originally born and raised in norfolk virginia um up there my whole life. Um, of course, I attended the Norfolk State University. <laughs> you know, I got to stop that out. You know, here, here we go. It's <laughs> not Norfolk State wherever I go. You know, it's unfortunate that everyone couldn't go there, but you know, for those of us that did, it was a great experience. Um, with that, uh, you know, and also got I got to run for a five in the house. I see. Oh what, man, let's go. Oh, uh, you know, I knew some good energy in this room, so I got to run for the house in the building. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The try the trifactor, you know. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Definitely. I'm born and raised north of Virginia. You know, um, I grew up with a definitely um what you would consider an adverse childhood, you know, um poverty, um, a lot of movement in my life, you know, multiple schools, um, definitely experiencing you know, childhood trauma. Um, and it's funny because now that I got older, I didn't even realize at the time that that's mm. what it was. I thought this is what everybody you know, went through until I got older and really got into doing the work I do now. I was like, okay. So it wasn't everybody. It was just pretty much my household. You know, um, unfortunately my dad was, um, was a substance abuser. Um, uh, my mom, um, did not finish school. So she, you know, but she still worked and maintained, you know, livable wages to do her best to try to take care of us. My dad, you know, definitely had his struggles. There were good moments and there were you know moments where we really struggled, you know, to really make it to where we are. And I think the, the effect that it really had on me growing up was, seeing that lifestyle and seeing that life, I was like, yeah, this is not what I want to go through, you know, and I don't want my children to go through that, you know, as well. So it was just really tough watching those struggles with that. I think it kind of lit a fire in me that when, when a lot of people I look at that I came up with, it, it kind of did the opposite for them. They kind of just, you know, mailed it in and, and made some different choices. And I'm not saying that I'm better than anybody. I'm just saying for me, it just made me say, okay, this ain't what I want to do. This is not what I want to deal with. So um, I think for me, high school is probably the roughest. I think by the time I was in high school, my dad was pretty much living in New York City. So I would go back and forth from New York to see him here and there. But that was tough for me as a young man because, you know, as young men, that's when you need, you know, your mm -hmm. father the most when you hit them teen years and you got all these questions and why is hair here and, you know, why all these going <laughs> on? You know, you know, try to figure out how to, you know, young ladies and all that stuff is going on. And all I really had at that time was just my mom and she did the best that she could, you know, and I had two sisters with that piece. So it just kind of, you know, life was really tough. Um, but I, I had some good people, some good friends that helped me get through those moments. And um, I would eventually get a um, full, full ride to Norfolk State, which was, I mean, it was already a great school, but me getting a, a full scholarship mm -hmm. to go there. Um, those were the things that really set forth and really changed my life, you know being able to go to North State University, coming from um, public housing or the projects, as many of us may know, you know, cause I mean, I didn't even, college wasn't even on my radar. Mm. So um, when I when I was nearing the end of high school, I was like, you know what, I don't got no plan. 
So I guess I'll just go to college then. That was kind of, you know, how I felt. Then I guess I'll just go ahead and go to college. So that was the pretty much the big thing for me and not knowing that that would really change the course of my life pretty much um, moving forward. So it was definitely um, a blessed experience, you know, but I always say at the end of the day, um, I, I embraced every experience I had because it made me that the man I am today. And it really inspired me to do the work as an educator, as a restorative practice trainer, to really go out here and do the work I do. I'm inspired by my own past to really want to make a difference in the world. So that kind of what really pushed me. That's, that's the short version. That's, that's the short. <laughs> Thank you for the show version. So give us a little bit, give a little feedback as far as like what it is that you're doing currently. I, I mean, okay. I know a little bit about the restorative justice piece because when I was, uh, when we worked together, um, I think we were, you were just getting started. Um, uh, so yeah, just tell us a little bit about that and just kind of where you, what you currently do. Sure, sure. So currently I'm an assistant principal at a middle school. This is like my 21st year in education. So y'all like punishment. You know, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, working in the middle school is, is unpredictable. It's a little bit of everything, right? So I love it. So like you said, about seven years ago, I got into what's called restorative practices, which is basically the same as the restorative justice movement. But really, it's, it's really just pretty much the social science behind relationships, right? How do we interact as people? And just reframing how we look at harm and relationships, that we understand that when harm is done, you not only harm or break a rule, you also harm that person. So how do we fix that and give that person a voice where you can understand how they feel? Because I always frame it like this. When it comes to like consequences and punishment, it's easy for you to punish me and I have to deal with that person, right? Mm-hmm. But if I had to sit down and I, and I did something to Dwayne and I got to hear Dwayne talk about how what I did impacted him and maybe impacted his family, I always say that if you're a human being, that's going to resonate with you. That, that's going to cause some level of remorse that you understand really that the impact of my actions what they do to other people but when you just punish me in isolation i don't get to see that mm. I, okay cool i'm gonna do I, I get kicked out of school or i'm going away for a few years okay cool but when i gotta sit and hear those stories and hear the pain and you know the anguish that i cause families or, or individual people um that's really a lot harder to deal with and that's that's what accountability is really about so i travel around working with different schools different organizations on really like bringing restorative practice into their schools. I do um, mediation circle, conflict circles. It's really about bringing people together in a safe space and how do we air out our differences. But also too, how do we come together and build a family? That's that's the basic level of restorative practices is how do we make everybody belong and feel like they belong? Because you can't fix a relationship that you haven't built. Hmm. What, what impact have you seen this program and this process have on everyone involved. Gotcha. So, so the main thing that I'm concerned about when I really go into this work is the students, right? Because we have this thing called the school to prison pipeline, right? And as black males, we know that when it comes to school, we're not disciplined the same as everybody else, right? We don't get the, the mercy rule. We don't get the same consideration. We get put out that door. And what it does is that when you constantly put children of color out of school, they're on the street. And if they're on the street, chances are something's going to happen, right? So it really increased, increased um, like juvenile incarceration, which leads to adult incarceration, right? So part of this work that brought me to it was really trying to break down those barriers and look at how do we do school discipline, right? And what this person did, did it really want them being kicked out of school or are we just doing that because it's quick and it's easier? So one impact is that it's really teaching teachers how to build relations with students, right? But also teaching teachers how to build relationships with other teachers. How the relationship with admin, how admin can be better admin toward their teachers, 
So what is done, the, the number one impact is that it makes people reflect, how am I in relationship with other people? Because I can't change anybody else. I can only control my actions. So how, how did I treat Dwayne today? How did I treat EJ today when I was in relationship with them? Was I fair? Was I just punitive? Was I a jerk? Or did I treat them young men as if they were human? But like I said, my main impact was really, I want to break that school to prison pipeline where children of color are not repeatedly being kicked out of school. For most of the time, it's a lot of minor infractions. I, I take the number one infraction you see is disrespect, right? And I always say, how do you measure disrespect? Because in some cultures, eye contact by youth is considered disrespectful, right? Mm -hmm. But then I say, look at me, and you're not looking at me because in your culture, that's not acceptable. And that's disrespect. You got to go. You out of here. Five, ten days. You got to roll. Oh, I my favorite, right? Look, my favorite one is I disrespected you. <laughs> and I expected you not to say nothing back to me because I'm an adult. Mm -hmm. But I stopped in front of your peers, and now you out the door. So that's, that's pretty much most of the impact is building those relationships for the most part. You said five to ten days off of uh <laughs> hey, hey Dwayne, you just seen it. You know, you know <laughs> hey, hey, it's not a laughing matter, but you know cats out the door. They do quick. <laughs> they definitely because you know, like when you work in the school system, sometimes they'd rather just kind of get rid of the issue instead of deal with the issue. Because mm -hmm. of what it's gonna require, it's gonna require you more, it's gonna require more work. And most of the time, if you want to be honest, people don't want to work. <laughs> they want to they want to be there. They want to collect a paycheck. But, you know, that's a whole different story. They want to be there, collect a paycheck and not really put the work in. Um, and that's what, you know, happens sometimes in the school system. Um, and that's why they don't help African-American men, because it, 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 it targets them um, unjustly, per se, uh, to not succeed. So with, with that being said, like you, you work in the school system. So how, how has this uh uh pandemic how has that changed the way you do things how does that impact you um in a way that you operate a, a, as an educator and as a system principal so wow this, this has been a tough year um just being home i feel like i've worked a lot more than i did when i was in the building mm -hmm. it just like it like the work never stops the meetings never stop you know um i definitely have been worried about the students um because what i one thing i've been pushing at my school is that we got to address their social emotional health because mm -hmm. everybody's situation, I'm fortunate to have a space in a home where I can work from home. Right. But everybody doesn't have that situation. You know, a lot of our kids, multiple family members live in the home. You know, they're, um, as I remind everybody, remember a lot of people who lost jobs were the families of some of our students, some mm -hmm. of their jobs shut down and, and they're going without. Um, so it's really been like, how can I support the students, but also my teachers, emotional needs because we're, we're still humans too, right? We still, you know, lost family members. We still have kids at home while we're trying to have me and your kids in the background on school. <laughs> it's really been like, I become a jack of all trades almost. It's trying to multitask, you know, multiple things. Um, as far as school has definitely been a struggle for a lot of students, but there mm -hmm. have been that have had success, particularly my son. He's been a straight A student through this. And for him, it worked better for him, you know, gotcha. He said he enjoyed being home and doing it on a computer. But I know a lot of students that I serve in my building, um, they struggle academically. We saw um, school attendance, school enrollment drop as a district. A lot of districts across the country have seen mm -hmm. their drops where kids just have even fallen off attendance or they withdrawn or parents or moving them to private schools. Or it really, to me, it really exposed our educational system in America. Right. We knew that these disadvantages were there. But I think this really showed you this really how big those gaps were. You start talking access to Wi-Fi, mm -hmm. technology, um, even access to food. 
You know, a lot of students depend on that breakfast and that lunch at school. So you take all of that away. It, it, it was a bad situation for a lot of people um, with that. So kind of glad to see we're back in school. But if I put on that restorative lens again, I'm like, how can we look at this opportunity and learn from it? Right. So I said to myself, how can we reframe how we do school moving forward? And the way you remember home and hospital, right? Do we, mm -hmm. Can we we can't do distance learning for home and hospital students now? We have laptops. We got the access. What about discipline? If I need to send your child home for a couple of days, <laughs> distance learning as opposed to just not being home, getting right. Anything, you know, so instead of you saying you suspend it, you want distance learning for two days. Mm. So you can plug into your class. Like, so like, how can we look at this as a community and say, let's reframe education and move forward? That's good. That's good because that still gives them access to the information and then they don't have to catch up when they, you know, when they're not there or they can say, I, I ain't get to work or the parents not. I mean, that's like, I think that's clutch right there. Yeah, um, we'll it, but it's just a matter of the, it, the school system going to adopt that because th what that does is that that puts some more it puts more work on the uh, teachers, um, honestly, um, because they got to they got to manage both. So, uh, you know, how, how, as from a, a administrative role. Uh, how, how do you manage that that tension or, you know, help them see, see the benefit of it or kind of get the, the buy in from? Them? Well, that, that, that's just the idea I've been floating out there. OK, so <laughs> that's, just, that's just the restorativeness in me. But it's got funny it. that for teachers, I got to get teachers their props. Right. We, we have to thank our teachers. Right. Because mm -hmm. come back Absolutely. to school and I got kids at home and I got a couple of kids in front of me and I'm still on the computer. I'm still wearing a mask. I'm still wearing a face shield. That's it, a lot, you know, but they show up every day. I think teachers across the nation deserve all of them should get a, a medal of honor because they just been resilient. You know, I mean, there have been a lot of teachers that have exited the profession, but I think for various reasons. But I think those who stay and get up day in and day out, man, it, this is not easy because remember, they also got to maintain their own emotional health. You know, they've lost family members, parents. They've had children that are sick and they still are expected to come stand in front of this computer. Which, you know, remember, we we haven't been, you know, trained or prepared for this. We were thrown into it. Right. Thrown right into it. And, and then, you know, but they've maintained it all the time. So I definitely want to give teachers a shout out for that. Absolutely. Shout out to all the teachers. If, you, if they might be listening, we appreciate y'all for all the hard work y'all did. Absolutely. And, and still doing, honestly. Yeah. We ain't done yet. <laughs> definitely ain't done. <laughs> Absolutely. Was there any cultural opposition or, or pushback to the idea of the restorative process that you may have encountered or faced if at all that yeah i get a lot of pushback because <laughs> <laughs> the, the main thing i think ej is that it, it takes time to do this right people like punishment because punishment is fast mm -hmm. like as an administrator i took his all the time the easy thing i can do is suspend you that's easy for me i'm gonna say hey you got four days you don't but when I got to sit, work through it, try to figure out a, a reasonable solution, you know, um, a lot of times teachers don't like that. One, because there's a myth that, you know, when you have restorative practices, you can't discipline the kid, right? But discipline and punishment are two different things. You know, the, the purpose of discipline is to, is to teach, right? Mm -hmm. The purpose of punishment is consequence. So I try to get teachers in the mindset of discipline. Do you want, you want to address the behavior so you can change it? Or do you want to keep dealing with the same behavior when they come back to your class? I'm going two days, come back, do the same thing. I'm going three days, come back, do the same thing. So I'm like, the time is going to be spent regardless. Right. Address it on the front end or whether you want to keep repeating it. So a lot of times teachers will push back because sometimes, you know, hey, I love my educators, but they want blood. Like they want, <laughs> you need to go out of here. Like, you know, like I want him gone. 
And right. I, gosh, like, hey, agree. All you did was <laughs> he got up and sharpened his pencil. That was it. <laughs> well, like, most of the stuff we deal with in schools, though, is really like it gets really tricky, right? You, you have your serious incidents, don't get me wrong. And that's school safety is always number one, right? But a lot of things that you see with a lot of educators, not just teachers, is that we police students. You know, you, you can't go to the bathroom till I tell you. You can't talk till I tell you to talk. You can't sit in this seat. You can't do that. You can't do that. So kids hear this all day long. Can't do this. I can't do that. I can't go this way. I got to walk in a straight line. I got to wear this uniform. And then, you know, if I do anything, I'm out of here. So a lot of for, for students, that can be difficult, you know, and, and we, we forget that students are also human, too. And we also forget that behavior is taught, just like we teach reading, just like we teach math. We teach swimming. We teach how to ride a bike. You also have to teach behavior and you have to teach appropriate behavior in different settings. So I think a lot of times teachers have so much on them that the weight of that sometimes can make them frustrated. They really don't want to deal with anything from the students. So a lot of times it's easy for me just to put you out of my class and really deal with that underlying issue. So I'll say this, um, behavior is communication. So we have to figure out what is this person exactly communicating to me, right? We talk about justice, right? In this country, we look at justice as punishment, but justice is what everybody needs for their well-being, right? So just as the victim needs justice for what happened to them, the person who did the harm needs some type of justice because why are you stealing? Are you stealing because there's no food at home? Why are you fighting? Are you fighting because you're being abused by somebody else? So what is where is the justice for that person, too? So that's where that restorative piece makes us look at it differently, right? And then you get to feeling all mushy, and a lot of people don't like that. They don't want to feel all emotional. I don't want to be all soft at work because I'm Mr. Green. You don't talk in my class. You don't move. You know what I'm saying? You, you'll be about it. Mm -hmm. So you need to present that persona, but that's not how kids learn. Because when kids don't feel safe, they can't learn. What is what are some things uh you know you talked about the, the childhood trauma that you experienced that you realized that you experienced, you know, later on in, in life? What are some things that, that our youth are dealing with that you've had to come across and, and and get a little um unconventional or you know kind of have to deal with that that you know they don't teach you how to deal with? I think one of the biggest things, and I'm I'm just gonna put my foot in the water on this one, is identity. And and it's you know, you see it like, who am I? Where do I fit in? You know, a lot of times, you know, you all know this too growing up, you may be pulled to that negative peer group, right? Because that's mm -hmm. the group that accept me, or this group over here might accept me. A lot of our kids, they're looking for something, right? They're looking for love, they're looking for something to attach to to validate them. And it's just sometimes it's easier to find those negative forces than it is the positive ones, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where as adults, we play that really big role because you'd be surprised a good morning, a hug, what that can do for a child. And I'm not advocating touching kids because I want you to be on the news. <laughs> but I'm just saying, you know, I try to show love to all the kids, right? You know, I had an assembly last year and I was like, yo, I want y'all to know that Mr. Green love y'all. And the room went like dead silent. Like, what? <laughs> I love y'all. I mean, I love y'all. I want the best for y'all. I love y'all. But that threw them off because, you know, we, we assume that somebody's telling these kids so they love them. Right. We assume that I'm not blaming their parents or anything. But I'm just saying we assuming that people come from love, but everybody doesn't because many of the people in our children are in survival. And when you're in survival mode, your goal is to get through each day. And mm -hmm. you see a lot with a lot of our young people. Right. I've had young students who, who have jobs, who are working with their parents, 
who they miss time out of school because they're trying to help out at home or their babysitting siblings. So a lot of our students are operating in survival mode, right? So they don't see the connection that eighth grade, if I graduate from high school, this all eventually is going to help me out down the road. What they see is, what are we going to eat tonight or where are we going to stay at tonight? You understand? Mm -hmm. you know, when is dad getting out or when is mom coming back? You know, they're dealing with those types of things. So for a lot of them, it's not that they, it's not that they can't learn, it's that they're unable to learn right now because of that survival mode. I'm trying to get through the day. I'm trying to get through the streets I got to walk through. I got to walk through this neighborhood, this rival territory. You know, you still see the influence of gangs. Um, is even more prevalent as now. And it's sad because the music we listen to promotes it more than anything. Mm -hmm. and I, I, who am I to go against their favorite hip hop artist? You know, he on the video, he flagging, this song is bumping. You're green, you tripping. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? I got to rep for the set. So Mr. Green, you in here tripping. So it's really hard a lot of times with that. So when I when I get the young men, I never knock them for who they are, what they're trying to do. I just say, you know, just think of the bigger picture. What's, and, and I try to share my advice on what can be a better way. But, you know, they see me as, you know, Mr. Green, you ain't never done nothing. You ain't, you ain't been through nothing or whatever, whatever. So I'm not always cool enough. So that's why I try to bring in outside people as well to talk to them. But I would say that the, the hardest thing is that most of them are just stuck in survival mode. And you see that now more than ever during this pandemic because so many homes were affected by it. Cool. I want to touch on that, touch on that part where you said you, you, you loved them and it was solid. Um, now, you know, could it, I mean, we, and it, we can hypothesize about, you know, different things about why did that, and, you know, could it be that they don't hear enough black men professing that they love somebody unless they say they love, you know, <laughs> such and such, or, you know, they love smoking or they love doing that. But when they express love for one another, and, and it's just a general love. They're not used to that. Definitely. I agree with you 100%, right? And I'm going to add another layer to that. My role in the building is I'm an assistant principal. When you think assistant principal, you think discipline. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I'm, Mr. Green, you know, I'm, I'm six feet tall. If I skip breakfast, I'm about 260. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So you look at that. So they like, okay, this is a big dude. Mm -hmm. I know he, he with it. You know what I'm saying? I tell them, so they, they see it that way too, as you said. So I'm the enforcer. So when I come with that, I love you. I want you to be successful. They're like, I won't, I'm not expecting to hear that from you. Kids say all the time, Mr. Green, I thought you was gonna be mean, or I thought you was gonna be this way, or I thought you were gonna be that. But I but I think you know, to me, I know that a lot of times what I say in this day may change or impact their life. Mm. You know, I tell people that one of my mantras is that be careful how you treat people because you don't know what they're dealing with. You know, that person you may have said good morning to today. That might have been the reason they didn't go home and kill themselves today. You know, and, and I think a lot of times that's why I love the restorative work, too, is that we got to really look at how we treat people as human beings. Right. It, it ain't about you got to love and be cool with everybody, but it's about seeing everybody as human. Even when we screw up, we're still human beings. Right. Because I, most of the time, the behavior is just a symptom of the condition. And when we look at a lot of our communities and stuff, we always talk about the symptoms, but we never talk about the condition that create that. You know, and I think it's important that we change that narrative. And especially as black men, because we can be loving. We love, we're protectors, we're all the above. We're not just there, because a lot of times in education, we're just there to be the enforcer. I was just gonna say that. Mm -hmm. Can you get him out of my class? And I'll come mm -hmm. and say, your favorite EJ, let me, let me holler at you real quick in the hallway. And EJ get up and walk out. I didn't come in with security, with the with the handcuffs out, you know, dangling <laughs> in the door, you know, with the tape lighting up. You know, I just say, hey, EJ, let me holler at you real quick. Let me talk to you. So I had to say, it's just about how you treat people. But if I'm all in your face, if I come in and say, EJ, yo, you tripping, dog? 
what we doing? EJ gonna look at his boys and he can say, oh, I can't get punk. I got a child with Dwayne now. And then mm-hmm. he, and, and Dwayne, I know you know that. You you we've been in, in a building <laughs> simple situation completely left. Completely <laughs> left. <laughs> I'm talking about police involved. I'm like, yo, all we had to do was ask him to leave the room. <laughs> That's it. And you know? I- I was going to say, you know, um, I was going to say all three of us have that that experience in in these professions, whether it's education, mental health or or other where, you know, when you're a black male, you're a unicorn. Right. And they're like, yeah, come on, whether it's whether it's come move this for me or come holler at this kid for me or something. You know, we, we because we're the rare uh, uh, bunch. And, and if you physically a little bigger than the average person or just physically bigger, you, you get that role. So. You know, we're talking about stigmas. How how was it for you dealing with that and overcoming that uh, through your educational career? You know, it's tough because, you know, first thing as a black male, I got to convince you that I'm smart, right? That I'm not just here. I'm not a bouncer inside of a school building, you know, that I actually know a little bit of things. I actually got a couple of degrees. You know, I don't brag about that, but I'm saying that I'm actually a smart man and I understand what I'm doing. The, the second thing is that... um is that, you know, I want to be seen as human just like everybody else, right? I want to be treated with the same level of respect and love just like everybody else. But I think as men, where I try to break that barrier is that I can also be nurturing. You know, my nurturing may not be, you know, oh, let me kiss your boo-boo, stuff like that. My nurturing may be just, look, man, you can do this. You can be better. You know, I still love you. I'm rooting for you. I want to see you do better. And I give kids that pep talk, even when it comes to a moment that I have to discipline them and I have to get their parents involved, I still tell them, hey, you know, I still want the best for your child. I still want you to be successful, you know, but, you know, but I explained them that, you know, in life, when we you know things happen, there'll, there'll be consequences, the natural consequences and their more extreme consequences. But it's just really letting people see that I, I know what I'm doing, that I can lead because, you know, your question, people look at you up and down. But most importantly, as a black man, a lot of times people look for you to make a mistake. They just wait, you know, and especially when you come new into a school building, who, who is this guy? Who do he know? Who is his uncle? But how did he get this job? Or I bet you he gonna do this. Or I bet you he gonna do that. And, and EJ, if we gonna keep it a buck, EJ. If we gonna keep it a buck tonight, they expect you to mess with everybody inside the building, right? I'm keeping it clean. You're but you preaching know, now. They, they expect you to come and be all over the place. You know, mm-hmm. good morning, Miss Jackson. How y'all doing? <laughs> Pack your books up, walk into your class, sister. You know. Yeah. <laughs> You to be all over the place, so you got to break that stigma. That's first. That's usually the first stigma that you got to get around. You know, is that I'm here, I'm not with that. I'm with the work. Let's get the work done, and that you know we can be serious and that we can lead. You know, and all that other foolishness. You know, lead that over there. You preaching right there, brother. <laughs> now, now, as a as you you uh, kind of you're in the assistant principal role now. So, have there been like any, I guess, any other barriers that you face within? like the administration within like colleagues that, you know, even from our own people, sometimes we can kind of be like standoffish. We can kind of like, nah, he, he don't deserve that position. Like, (laughs) (laughs) man, you preaching. What is fitting right now? (laughs) I came in the door. I had beef. I was like, I I don't don't even know about. I walked into a job with beef. Um, And it's just crazy because, People will feel that you don't deserve something that they applied for and they didn't get. But I'm like, I'm not the one who did the interviews. You know, or, you know, I feel like I had the skill set and I, I was qualified to be an assistant principal. I did the work. I put the years in. Um, 
my resume speak for itself, you know, but um, a, a lot of times that's just that emotional piece, you know, so you definitely get that pushback. And when you come, when I came into new, people were waiting to see, you know, who is he or mm-hmm. what, you know, so I had to be kind of quick to show people that I knew instruction. I knew what I'm doing. I, I know this educational game. I've been in this game for years. So you got to kind of do like a, a resume overview without really doing it, you know, mm-hmm. tell them, hey, I'm, I've been in the game 20 years. You know, I do this, I do that. Even I go out and do trainings. People like, you know, who is this guy to tell us what to do? I said, well, I'm an assistant principal also. And they're like, oh, then they'll, they'll, they'll adjust their seat because now they want to listen. They thought it was a guy going around the country talking about a program, you know, but when they see that, but, you know, that that pushback is usually always there when you first come into the place. And I think that's where that restorative piece helped me at, right? Because I know the old me, I was very petty. So you want to be petty? I can be <laughs> I'm definitely a tip for tap person, right? And I, I tell people all the time, they'll say, well, I know how you feel. I said, no, you don't. But you will. <laughs> you will. <laughs> I guarantee you that. Because I was that petty, right? But now I learned through that lens that sometimes you got to let people just sit with their own anger and emotion. I'm going to let you sit with that. Because, you know, when you're ready, we over here doing the work. And I think when I at my school, I had a couple of people who were like that. But the majority of my grade level that I worked with, they were with me. And I just stayed focused on them and focused on what I could do. And eventually those other people who were still mad that I got the job, they had no choice but to come over there and, and kind of be with us. And I never treated them any differently. I just had to stay focused on what I'm there for because a, a lot of time that stuff is just a deflection. And you, you'll be arguing about a parking space or something. And the real reality is we got to get this work done. But you want to argue about a pocket space every day, you know, or, you know, why am I in this role or whatever, whatever. You got to get past that. So it's really tough sometimes just to really try to stay focused on that, though. But it's it's tough being a school administrator because you get blamed for everything. Mm. You get blamed for everything. So you got to really eat that. You're getting it from the parents. Sometimes you get it from the teachers. Sometimes you get it from the students, you know, and being an assistant principal was really tough about that is that. You have to live in someone else's vision, right? You have to operate. And I'm not saying whether it's good or bad. I'm just saying whatever the principal's vision is, is your job to execute that. Whether you agree with it or not, your role as an assistant principal is to execute the vision of the principal. And, you know, depending on what type of principal you have, that could be a, a bad situation or a good situation. So I, I would tell people, you know, being a school administrator, it, it, it's just like playing sports. It matters what system you're going to. Like, you know, when you look at football, you're running back. What, what kind of scheme do that team run? Mm-hmm. I'm nice with it, but you get to that team and they don't, you know, they ain't got that offensive line or whatever, whatever, you're gonna be trash. Well, if you go to a school and the principal don't really have a strong vision or he he don't really, you know, care and, and you trying to do your thing, it's gonna be an ugly situation. So that definitely plays a major role. Definitely. Yeah, you definitely touched on, you know, the duality of you know being a black male and and, and having to prove you know your worth basically and then you know uh being in the role of of having to carry out the mission and vision of someone else and uh you know what what is it about you that these 21 years continues to motivate you to put on that hat and stay in that lane and and still execute and be who you are man it's tough because in my mind i've quit like every year (laughs) you know until september you know then i come back but you know my wife would tell you that i just like man i'm over this this ain't gonna work you know (laughs) (laughs) um for me though it's the children you know it's the kids right i'm like somebody has to go in here and fight for them every day right because my my biggest pet peeve outside of people smacking on food is (laughs) treating the kids you know what i'm saying 
<laughs> you mistreat the kids, then we have a personal issue, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, they need us to love them up. And, you know, I, I still see a lot of our students now that are adults and have families. And they, I see them, they Mr. Green, Mr. Green, I'm like, hey, oh, oh, you almost 30 now. You, you can call me, you can call me Randy now. You're a grown, you're an old grown man. But seeing them and seeing that response of kids I've taught like almost, you know, over 20 years ago or at the beginning of my career and see them saying, you know, I remember you said this, I remember you told us that, that still stays with me. You know, um, on coming before pandemic, I was hanging out enjoying myself and a student came up to me and he was able to recite a poem I told him like in 2003. He's like, mm. I got that poem, you know? So that's what keeps me motivated, right? Because I'm like, some of these kids, you know, are going to look back and say, you know what? This is what Mr. Green said. And that's why I was able to be successful or while I was able to move forward. So it's just the advocating for the kids, man, because my goal is to be the person that I needed when I was their age. You know, when I was going through my things with my family and trying to keep my head up and trying to move forward, I wish somebody had took time to say, you know, is something going on, young man, or, or can we help you? So I, I try to be that for them. That's that's the ultimate thing that really just keeps me motivated because it's, I'll be honest with you, it's a lot of people in education that don't really care about our kids. Oh, absolutely. From, from absolutely. the bottom. From Absolutely. And I'll say, I don't care. From top to bottom, they don't care about the kids, you know, and they're just there and, you know, and I'm just getting this check and I'm, until I can plan to my, so I can move to my next job, you know, but there are a few of us who really actually care. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. I'm mad, but it's a proof. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely agree with you on that one. Uh, because when I look at middle school, like I remember going to middle school and it, like, I felt like all my teachers cared. Like they really was invested. Now, for me, I didn't see a I didn't see a a male teacher until I got to high school, and he was a gym teacher. So it, mm -hmm. it's kind of like, <laughs> so it's kind of like you know when I grew up, it was like I you know I saw a white male. You know he was like the almost like the assistant principal, but I you know I, it was always strong women who really invested in the children. So. It's definitely they don't they don't care like they used to, no. um, uh, and they're not in it for the long haul. Um, what, what we see is that we find a lot of people who are, who are just kind of it's like a a, a gateway to where they want to go, um, and not not what they want to do. Um, uh, with with all that being stated, you know, as far as like all the different the hats that you wear, like how what do you do for self uh, self care and, and management? Because you 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 play a pivotal role as a central principal, you know. Um, in the school system with the teachers. So how do you maintain your self-care in this process and, and just throughout life? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, and, I, and I kind of fell off a little bit during, well, I was doing too much self-care during pandemic and picked up a few. But, uh, <laughs> a little extra self-care. Um, for me, I try to be intentional, right? Um, one thing I do is I, I, I do cycling. I, I'm not a master cyclist, but I do, you know, I try to ride. That's a great time for thinking, um, good physical exercise, um, one thing I had to improve on is getting more sleep. That's been my more recent self-care is getting more sleep because you, your body needs to rest. But um, the main thing is I unplug. Friday and I leave work at 3.30, I'm not answering anything. It will be Monday morning. When I leave work in the evening, I cut it off. Don't call me, don't text. I'm not responding until tomorrow morning because it will be there. So I think you have to be intentional about unplugging, right? But then I think too, one thing I learned is we got to be able to say I'm not okay. That's part of self-care is me saying, you know what? I'm not okay. I am stressed out. I am worried about this. I am worried about that. And, and having somebody and a network of people to talk to, I think it's not a sign of weakness. It's actually being in tune with yourself. 
and I'm just understanding how you work and how you function and when I'm not being the best version of myself. So I, I try to exercise daily. That's a good stress reliever for me. So when the gyms closed last year, that was kind of tough for me because the gym was always my outlet after work. A lot of times I leave work, I'm going to the gym because that's my, let me just leave everything in here in the gym. Let me get it in real quick. So when I go home, I could be, be Randy as opposed to being Mr. Green, you know, with that. But I think um, I try to be intentional and do stuff for myself, you know, plan things for myself. Um, even if it's just sitting up, watching TV, watching my movie or laughing, you know, um, to be honest, uh, one of my favorite stuff is looking at memes online <laughs> and just laugh for hours, you know, there's some funny stuff online, but laugh uh, of care, you know, life, I mean, life always have to be that serious. Even in, even in these rough moments, you know, it's okay to laugh, mm-hmm. but laughing and, and just really, I try to be intentional about the people I surround myself with. Right. Because, you know, family is about people who love you. And I think that's something that we really have to understand because we have a lot of toxic behaviors, right? And we always tell people, well, that's so-and-so, that's your brother, that's your aunt, that's your mom, you're supposed to love them. But I'm telling you that this person is doing repeated harm to me and you're telling me no matter what, I should just keep dealing with them. So that's that's something that we got to recognize for self-care is that people who don't love you, that's not family, that's a relative. It's a different, you know, family is surrounded with love, man, and, and having those people you can depend on you know what I'm saying? A lot of times, me and my boy, I may call him driving home from work. It's an hour drive. We on the phone just unloading everything, right? Because mm-hmm. not only do we carry the stress of work, right? We got to carry the stress of being black men. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you got to carry the stress of new video they dropped this week. I haven't watched it, but another video of a black man being killed. I got to process that, right? Because I have a black son. You know what I'm saying? And I'm a big black dude that could get pulled over and be mm-hmm. part of my business. So, that's something that people don't always understand. And sometimes maybe our wives and the women in our lives don't always understand what that feels like, not taking anything away from them, you know, so carrying all those weights and things. We have to have outlets that we can go to as men, you know, and where, where do we get to speak and where do I get to unload my emotions? You know, so I think it's important for men for self-care to have those type of opportunities in your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you got anything else, CJ? No, I'm I'm good, man. I'm good. He he definitely uh crushed some things out the park for me, man. <laughs> you know, definitely. Definitely, definitely, definitely appreciate you taking the time uh just to kind of you know share your story, share you know your you know your experiences and share your success story, and the different things. So definitely, thank you again for consent to do this. Uh, want uh, want to do our little party greeting? You know, once again, thank you for joining us uh, at Unapologetically Male Surviving Society Stigma Standards and Systems. Um, please please be sure to follow us on uh, our business page at J Pope Connections on Facebook. You can follow EJ on Facebook, Emilio Store. You can follow myself, Dwayne Pate, um, on Facebook. Also, you can follow uh, YouTube channel D Pate Junior. If you want to catch the recap um, of this. Uh, of this segment uh, once again we just want to highlight african-american story african-american men's stories highlight their ability to su- survive and succeed in the midst of a society that you know tends to hold, put stigmas on us and put standards that we're not meant to break we're not meant to surpass so once again thank you for joining us on this monday and hope to see you next week thank you brother green appreciate you man thank you gentlemen thank you for putting this show together man this is a great thing man we, we need this Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate you. Be safe. You too, brother.